Welcome to Good Faith. I'm Ben Dreyfus. All conspiracy theories are bullshit, and all conspiracy theorists are mentally ill. Okay, fine. There are some conspiracy theories that are true, and okay, fine, there are some conspiracies that will be true. But in general, they're all bullshit. It's those few ones that are true that are so fucking annoying. It's why things like the business plot really eat at me. Now, what is the business plot? It's okay if you don't know what it is. They don't teach it in schools. They don't teach it in college. The only reason I even know about it is because I was, at some point in my 20s, up too late on Wikipedia. Not doing what you're supposed to do in your 20s. I wasn't out making friends or socializing, you know, getting into romantic relationships that I would get progressively better at so that maybe by my mid-30s I would be emotionally mature enough to, you know, maybe be married. Maybe one day I'd have a family. Or even if you're not going to do that sort of, you know, golden years type of growth, you would make some sort of decision that you'd make the memories. You'd, you'd go to Corsica on a motorcycle and listen to rock and roll. Or, or if not that, you know, go to law school. I don't know. Just don't let life happen to you. Don't just let yourself flow down this river of time that feels endless but actually does end. Because then, as you get progressively closer to the end, you're just filled with more and more anxiety and regret that you let life happen to you, that you didn't exert agency and... You just find yourself thinking about that line that, you know, of all the words of mice and men, and then, God, what the fuck am I talking about again? Right, the business plot. Okay, so it's the 1930s, and FDR is in office, and he's going to do some of this New Deal stuff, and a lot of people, conservative, wealthy people, didn't like that. So some of them got together and said, we're going to do a coup, we're going to get rid of this FDR. And they approached this guy, this very popular general named Smedley Butler, and said, help us, we're going to do this coup, it'll be great. Come on, let's live our best lives. And Butler went to Congress and ratted them all out. So Congress investigated, and the plotters, they denied it. And a lot of people said Butler was making it up. He wanted attention, blah, blah, blah. But Congress investigated, and their opinion was that at least some of this was true. He was approached, and that's the opinion of historians today. Now, how much of it was true? How, how far along the plot got, who was involved, all of these things are up in the air. No one has real clear answers to that. But he was approached. And that's the thing that conspiracy theorists love. Because if he was approached, it means that there actually was this meeting at some point. You know, a bunch of powerful people got together in a room with cigars and said, let's control the world through nefarious means. And so this is a thing that they can point to as a sort of gateway drug into conspiratorial beliefs. This is an example. It actually happened. They also love it just because a lot of people don't know about it. It sounds so unbelievable that you think when you hear it, well, I would never think this was real. And then you see that it was real and you go, oh, well, maybe North isn't North. Maybe the sun doesn't rise in the East and set in the West. I think, I think that's right. I'm not a sailor. And then you'll think, huh, okay, maybe 9-11 was done by George Bush. 9-11 wasn't done by George Bush, but the business plot, it has certain kernels of truth to it. The only other time that you hear people ever talk about this is the way I used to, you know, sort of as an interesting Snapple fact, a fun little anecdote of Americana, something that people tell at cocktail parties where they want to impress other people with their awful, boring knowledge they learned from Wikipedia. I go to terrible cocktail parties. But today on this episode, I'm talking to Jonathan Katz, who's just written a book about Butler and the business plot. And he places it within an era of American history that I honestly don't know much about. It's this context where America took this moment, this turn towards imperialism. Now, I have to warn you, before we get to this interview, a small note. My side of this conversation sounds like I was on an analog cell phone driving through a tunnel underwater on Mars in 1989. I'm really sorry. 
The good news is, this is the last time I will sound like that. We here at the Good Faith Podcast, in conjunction with the Ben Drivers Institute, have been making strategic investments in things like microphones. And we've been reading, late into the night, things called instruction manuals. Further, we have medium to long-term goals of Googling things like base and gain and balance, other terms like this. We're all very confident that in the future, it's going to sound much better. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. All right, so I'm here with Jonathan Katz, the author of a new book called Gangsters of Capitalism. And how you doing, John? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for joining me on what is the third episode of my podcast. I'm glad to be here. Why don't you tell me who is Smedley Butler and what is the business spot? Yeah, so Smedley Butler, and by the way, I don't think I even learned about Butler in college. I mean, I studied American studies and history and actually took some courses on, you know, like U.S. diplomatic history, like during the Cold War um, that, that revealed like a lot of like unsavory details of American history. But I knew very little about any of this period until, until I came on to him over the course of my sort of lifelong research. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So, yeah, so Smedley Butler was a Marine who joined the Marine Corps in 1898 during what's generally known as the Spanish-American War. And from there was basically in every overseas invasion, intervention, occupation that the United States participated in until the eve of the Second World War. But spent, and you know, over that course, he received the Medal of Honor twice. He was extremely highly decorated. He retired a major general, highest rank available to Marines at the time. But then at the end of his life became a anti-war, anti-fascist, anti-imperialist activist. And the business plot, which sort of is the beginning and the end of the book, is in 1933 and 1934, essentially a group of powerful capitalists, industrialists, bankers, a representative of them, and a guy who claimed to be representing them, which we could talk about sort of what we know, what we don't uh, beyond that in, in a second, approach Butler with a plan to essentially overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt and replace him with a fascist dictator who the bankers and industrialists would name. And Butler did not go along with this. Instead, he went to Congress and testified and told them everything that he and this representative had talked about. And there was a very brief investigation and ultimately nobody was held responsible. And also it's important to note that this plot never happened. Right. And so basically like that's the version I was told was that in the beginning of FDR's presidency, all of these people who were very put off by the new deal and all of his policies were more, you know, they wanted Hoover continuations then decided that they'd had enough. They didn't want this and they wanted to, you know, stop this drift to the left that was going on and that they went to Butler and then with some insane plot that may or may not like how real it was. And then they chose the wrong guy who immediately went to Congress and knocked them <laughs> <Right>. out. <laughs> yeah. But what your book does in such an interesting way is it places it within this context of American imperialism, which I think when people, you talk about this in the book, but when you really mention that to Americans, they think that to the extent that America did imperialism at all, it did it in the Spanish-American War, right at the turn of the the. 19th to the 20th century mm. and that it was something that we did for a while and our heart wasn't really in it you know and then it sort of just went away particularly with the world wars that went on and everything sort of it, it was like a teddy roosevelt was big into it but then it didn't really last much longer than that 
And you do a wonderful job of sort of explaining how that version of American imperialism, that simple story, is not really true. Yes. So yeah, so why don't you just tell me more about that time, about what I'm getting wrong there. The view that you are carrying forward here, or repeating, I mean, that was, you know, sort of the orthodox view among a lot of mainstream American historians, and certainly journalists and the general public, really up until the present day, I mean, and certainly, you know, through the height of the Cold War. Because it's very, very difficult to look at the beginning of this period. So, you know, essentially 1898, you know, until the 1920s, and read it as anything but just blatant, overt imperialism, especially, you know, as you know, to the Spanish-American War, which some people quibble about the name of it, but the Spanish-American or Spanish-American, Spanish-Cuban-American or the Spanish-Cuban-Filipino-American War, but whatever, the war that we fought in 1898 against Spain, because it was just blatantly imperialist not only in Cuba, maybe even less so in Cuba than in the other places that the U.S. military went during that war. So we just straight up colonize Puerto Rico. We straight up colonize Guam. And the big one, we take Hawaii, which had the queen of Hawaii, Liliuokalani, had been overthrown by sort of a, a private sugar planter coup five years earlier. And then the McKinley administration basically used the, the fog of war to make that official and, and make Hawaii a colony of the United States. And then the big one is the Philippines, which I, you know, is, is the subject of three chapters of gangsters. Like it is a blatantly colonial project. Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he was very, very upfront about being an expansionist. You know, I quote him in the book, he talks in, in a private letter to a British friend about, you know, I always suspected I would make a pretty good imperialist. You know, at that moment, and it wasn't just Teddy Roosevelt, it was a number of his, you know, close friends, Cabot Lodges, Breckenridge, and there were a lot of people in America, I mean, white men in America, who saw the United States, you know, have this potential to become like a great world power. And it was the imperialism that Americans, that white Americans had undergone to conquer North America. We had sort of reached the end of that process. There was no land left to conquer. Yeah, there's a part in your book where you quote someone who's very explicit about how the Philippines are just the next frontier of the West. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I mean, even if you look at a map, like the Philippines are like the exact length of the West Coast of the continental United States. <laughs> it's due West. Yeah, no, that was exactly it. I talk in the book about um, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, which is a name that people who went to high school probably remember at least having encountered in, in history class. He was a historian. His famous thing was known as the frontier thesis. So in 1893, white Anglo people had control of everything from the East Coast to the West Coast. And he was sort of positing that this was going to be a great tragedy for American life because, as he saw it, the American character was forged on this frontier. And he's really the one who, who introduces this idea that we now sort of take for granted. I mean, it ends up becoming sort of a major jumping off point for, among other things, Hollywood, right? Like it's like all, every Western that comes out of Hollywood from the dawn of Hollywood until today owes itself to some extent to the frontier thesis because it's the idea that this wild, savage, untamed land, uh, free land, as Turner called it, that, you know, the white man was sort of, you know, the uninhibited, unencumbered cowboy will ride on to seas. And that in so doing, in this an encounter with savageness, right? Which is it's a racist idea, but like the idea right. that like by encountering native peoples 
and land that has not been claimed by the English-speaking, you know, Anglo-whites, that this then sort of engenders a change in his character. It's always his, right? But his character. And that this had sort of knock-on effects for American society and the development of American democracy in general. And, I mean, that's why at the end of every cowboy movie in like the 50s and 60s, they're riding west into the sunset because they're, right. they're going goes into the next one. They're going west. But the problem is that when you reach, you know, Santa Monica, yeah. like, <laughs> there's nowhere to go. Now we have to go into the Pacific. Now we have to take these islands out there. What I'm trying to say is that like these were imperialists. They were absolutely imperialists. And the only way for Americans who sort of believe on an elemental level that we cannot possibly be imperialists for whatever reason, right? Because we are a republic, because we are a country that was founded in a revolution against the British Empire. And, you know, empires are bad, empires are European, empires are the Soviets. So we couldn't possibly be an empire. So then, you know, kind of the orthodox historical tendency in the mid-20th century was, well, we have to make an excuse for this. So, like, the idea was, like, so the Spanish-American, like, we all went crazy. Like, you know, we got a little, you know, it was, it was all the opium that we were, like, introducing into, into China, and, like, we all just went a little nuts. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, like, you know, had all these great ideas about, like, you know, administration, and he and he just, like, he went a little too far. And that's kind of, like, that's kind of how they, they deal with that. And there are a couple of responses to this that come up in the mid-20th century that historians attempt. So one of them, and, and he's a guy who I quote at the front part of my book, very briefly, you could blink and miss it, but it's a guy named William Appleton Williams. And he's sort of seen as being kind of the godfather of what is often known as the revisionist school. So during the Cold War, they're saying, okay, the 1898 thing, that was not an aberration. That comes from imperialism on the American continent. And then Williams and these other Cold War era historians are saying they're connecting it to things that are happening in their moment. And the answer that they come up with is basically that American empire has now gone kind of sotto voce, right? It's the subliminal empire. And so they're looking at things like, you know, Vietnam, sort of like the, they're looking at the ways that, you know, the, the Johnson administration is pulling the strings behind, you know, the South Vietnamese and the ways in which, you know, we're trying to have the sort of like informal empire of influence in Indonesia and in Latin America and things like this. And then in our day, there's some other great historians. One of them who's working today is a guy named Daniel Emmerwar, who wrote a book called How to Hide an Empire, which came out two years ago or so. He's kind of pushing back on sort of the informal empire revisionists and saying, well, actually, if you look, you know, America's territorial empire still exists. The fact that we can even have this conversation is because it requires Americans to be completely unaware at both an intellectual and much more importantly at a visceral level of what our country is, the empire that our country controls, and what our country does in the world. And the reason why Smedley Butler was such an interesting character to me is because he lived at a time when people were also doing this back then. Even at this moment when we're like, oh, they were just crazy at that moment and then they got over it. Even back then, people were like, eh, it's not really happening. And Butler knew what was happening and was amazed to come back after, you know, 30 years at war to find out that Americans back home didn't know what he and his <laughs> Marines had been doing. And then this sort of, you know, leads to the business plot. 
So the plan here that McGuire presents Butler with is that Butler is going to lead a column of half a million World War I veterans armed with rifles provided on credit from the Remington Arms Company up Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House to basically surround the White House and intimidate Franklin Roosevelt into resigning or delegating his powers to, you know, super cabinet secretary who the plotters would name. And that's what they want him for. They're fully aware of Butler's military record. And they're fully aware of like his popularity among the enlisted men and veterans. But I don't think they're aware of the fact that he's taking this sort of left turn and that he has become a supporter of the New Deal. I'm pretty sure they're not aware that he's personal friends with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Or else they would have asked him. <laughs> but I mean, you know, McGuire does, and we're sort of getting into the weeds, but like McGuire does talk to Butler and Butler testifies to this effect that some of the people among whoever he's plotting with didn't want Butler. That they thought- Oh, he that, mentions it. Yeah. That, that, that it's they, such a negging negotiation tactic. Everyone well, at this yeah, party, yeah. Not, some people don't want you here, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. But I mean, like taking him at his word, which, you know, who knows? He was a lot, like he perjures himself in his testimony ultimately, but like taking him at his word for this, just for sake of argument, like that could have been, like it could have been that like people from J.P. Morgan, because that's who he says. He says it was the, it's the Morgan interest that don't want you. They want somebody like MacArthur. And they were right. Like if that conversation took place, they were right. They were like, this guy's too much. He's a little, too, yeah. he's too much of a radical. Like he's a redistributionist. He's not going to go to war for the capitalists knowingly at this moment in his life. But who knows? He has a track record for doing these kinds of things. In Haiti, in 1917, he storms the Haitian parliament with armed troops and disbands the Haitian parliament to force through an American written constitution that permits, among other things, Americans to own land in Haiti for the first time ever. You know, and that's what they want. I mean, they want, they want a January 6th. They want yeah. an armed mob storming the halls of power and intimidating American leaders into doing what they want. And Butler has done that. And so there are reasons to think that he might, but they guessed wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's like overwhelmingly one of the most sort of interesting things about him. And what I found so useful about your book, like drawing more of his arc into this, than just yeah. like the sort of weird thing I heard that went on with Business Plot. This is really like an arc about him. They wanted a team player. He had done this forever in all these other countries. And then he had sort of wisened up a bit about it. And also there seemed to be some hypocritical reasons why he didn't like it in America because they were white. Yeah. But like, if you just looked at it on paper, you'd be like, oh, this motherfucker, he was down to do all this shit for us in yeah. all these other places. So maybe he'll do it for us here. And whoops. What they would have just realized is that it's much easier to stop social progressivism by just putting people on the Supreme Court. You know, you don't need to have the little army. <laughs> so the business plotters, let's just talk about them for a second here. So McGuire tells Butler, this is August 1934. He says within a couple of weeks of their conversation that a organization is going to come out into the open consisting of big, powerful people. And he, he says they're going to be like the villagers in the opera, right? They'll sort of be behind the scenes. And the group that he is alluding to, as Butler figures out very quickly, is a group called the American Liberty League. And what the Liberty League is, it's an interest group organized principally by the DuPont brothers of DuPont Chemical, largest you know, explosives manufacturing contractor in, 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 in the country at that moment, and Alfred P. Sloan, the head of General Motors, 
uh, heads of McCann Erickson ad agency, Sun Oil, Phillips Oil, a bunch of important politicians, Democrats, anti-New Deal Democrats, Al Smith, John W. Davis, both of them were former Democratic candidates for president. And by the way, Gerald Magu- uh, Jerry Maguire's boss, Grayson Murphy, is the treasurer of the Liberty League. So the Liberty League, it is an anti-New Deal organization that promotes itself as a society to protect the Constitution. Naturally, that's what they say. Of course, they're going to protect the Constitution. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that's what I'm getting at here. These guys, they anticipate the right-wing and far-right movements of the rest of the 20th century that then go into today. There is a lot of commonality between the right and far-right reactionary-ism of the 1930s and what we're seeing right now in sort of using all of the levers of power that they have, whether it's money, influence, influence over the courts, you know, the fact that like people who become judges tend to come from wealthy families and share, you know, sort of common interests, et cetera. And again, none of these are simple stories. People are often at cross purposes with one another and like, I'm not alleging like, you know, like a grand conspiracy of like a small elite that has just, you know, sort of controlled right. America and the world since, since the <laughs> creation. But the point is that like, there are things that you can trace from people who are involved in both this wave of American imperialism and the business plot, you know, across World War II, through the Cold War, through the post-Cold War, and up to today there's never a break. There's just sort of like slow churning of the guard. And then it makes it much easier to understand what's happening today if you look back at its roots. I mean, I think the way you just sort of described that in like the disclaimer of this not being a conspiracy theory about some group of people who, you know, have been meeting in the woods to plan this for hundreds of years. Yeah. It's sort of like, one of the things that I find most annoying about Twitter is the way that it sort of makes people lean into conspiracy theories because everything has to be a little more malevolent. But like you've just described a totally organic but real phenomenon. They've all gone to the same Tony schools. They're private schools. They go to the same colleges. They all have very similar beliefs within a a somewhat range. And you end up getting jobs through networks and blah, 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 blah. And everyone ends up being led by the same 11 people or their descendants. I mean, this is the thing as well. And it's something that I was very – I tried to be cognizant about as I was writing the book because, look, I knew – I wasn't entirely sure how I was going to handle the business plot. I was also aware that, you know, you talk about this business plot and you talk about Smedley Butler, especially on Twitter, and people come out of the world work and they're not always necessarily people that you want to be talking to, right? You know, because like, for instance, in one of the edits of Loose Change, right? The 9-11 conspiracy, it was an inside job documentary. YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see me because it's a podcast. Documentary. <laughs> and they did like 11 different versions of because they kept having to change the thesis yes. as it was disproved. Yes. <laughs> so in one of them, they end with a thing about the business plot. And the reason why the business plot appeals to a certain kind of mind and a certain sort of tendency, which maybe I share, I don't know, is because it is an example or it appears to be an example of a real life conspiracy, right? To overthrow the government of the United States. It's the thing. They tried to do the thing, right? And for that reason, 
There are a number of people, and I, I actually encountered somebody on Twitter the other day who's like a researcher who researches extremism in the far right. I think he's an academic. And he was just sort of like, oh, yeah, people are always talking to me about this like business plot bullshit. And like, it's ridiculous. And there's no evidence to support it. And it was just this self-serving Marine who came out to... And I'm like, actually, hashtag actually. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it was not particularly to his benefit in terms of his career to come out. And there is evidence to support it, some of which we were talking about here today. And I think the reason why there is, you know, sort of a tendency, a, a, an instinct to sort of be like, well, this must be bullshit is because like, oh, now what? Now, now it's going to be like lizard people and right. like Lyndon LaRouche and like the queen and the Jews or like, what? What do you want? <laughs> and like the answer is, that, my, my answer to that is, and, and this is something that, that, so part of it is that throughout my career, I have, I, I share that skepticism, but the way that I deal with it when I come up on something that like seems a little conspiracy theorist-ish to me is I go into like deep, deep reporting. And I really try to uncover what I can. So the biggest example, you know, before this book, it was cholera in Haiti, right? Like I was the AP correspondent in Haiti in 2010 and rumors are circulating that the United Nations introduced cholera to Haiti. And I had the same instinct. I was like, this must be bullshit because it sounds like a bullshit conspiracy theory. And I go to the base, the UN base, and I uncover a bunch of evidence. And I'm like, oh, actually, no, there's a lot of evidence to, to support this. <laughs> And I end up kind of breaking that story and, and helping bring that to light. And so that was sort of the way that I also approached this. I was like, so what can I prove and what can't I prove? The other thing that I just think needs to be noted here in terms of its value as a piece of actual history as opposed to its value to, you know, sort of conspiracy theorists as a group is that it didn't fucking happen. Right. So like if the Illuminati, <laughs> right? <laughs> if like, Jay-Z and Beyonce's eternal souls had like been behind this thing, then it would have succeeded, right? Then they would have had total control over the media. Cause, and they did, they have, they, they had a lot of support in the media. Like the media helps cover this up, right? The media like helps the New York times and, and time magazine, et cetera. Like they, they help keep scorn and ridicule on Butler, right? They're doing it. They're doing the thing. And you've got all this money. And you've got, you know, like the leading arms company in, in the country, you know, DuPont, which at that point, you know, owned Remington. Like they're the ones who are going to provide the weapons. And they've got, you know, friends in very, very high places. If that was enough to do it, then it would have happened. The coup would have happened. Roosevelt would have been overthrown. A fascist dictator would have come into power in 1934. And the rest of history would have unspooled from there. It didn't happen because these are real people and real things that real people do don't always fucking work out. And to me, that's one of the things that actually is one of the most convincing votes in favor of the idea that there may have actually been a business plot. It's because right. that's kind of how you would expect this to go. It's, like, it's, it's a lot like January 6th. If January 6th hadn't happened on camera, people would be like, oh, what kind of fucking conspiracy? Theory? What are you talking about? They were planning to have people, they're planning to have like, QAnon and like active duty Marines and like housewives like fucking stormed the Capitol and they were going to put their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk and steal a fucking podium. Like what the fuck are you talking about? This is crazy. That would never happen. And then it did. And it didn't work. It didn't work. Right. Joe Biden became president anyway, because that's how this shit often goes. That is a great thing about the business plan as an example of this. And you can see that, yep, these people definitely thought about it. There certainly was evidence that this dude 
had these ideas for it. We don't know who he spoke to and how far along it got, but he wanted to do it. But yeah, doesn't mean it was going to work. Right. But it also means that these are things that have to be taken seriously. Like we have to take it seriously. They may actually try this because ultimately the ultimate conspiracist stance is defeatism, right? It's just like, yeah, nothing matters. The next thousand presidents of the United States have already been chosen for you. And, and the thing that you're going to watch on TV tomorrow has already been chosen for you. And the date of your death has already been pre-assigned. So then you don't need to do anything. And that's a way that people try to, either they're living out sort of a deeply felt sense of defeatism in their own lives, or they're trying to inculcate one in you. And that's something that I think should be gotten away from. But I think it's important to look at actual histories that actually happened and try to evaluate on its merits. All right. So I have kept you here for an hour and 20 minutes, which means we're going to now jump into my final question for you, which is, what is something, aside from what we've talked about, that you think is a bigger deal than people give it credit for? Like, in general, I tend to not freak out about many things, and I can sometimes be wrong. And what do you think I should be more freaked out about? I mean, I'm an alarmist about a lot of different things. So it's very (laughs) hard for me to... I mean, like, 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 I mean... Like climate change is such a stupid answer. Yeah, it's it's not a fun answer. So give me another one. (laughs) Another non-fun answer is earthquakes. Like in cities outside of California. Buildings aren't built the way they are in Los Angeles now to withstand any of this. Exactly. They're not prepared for it. Exactly. I mean, I think even LA is somewhat underprepared, but like they're more prepared. Like Chicago's not fucking, they're not ready at all. There were two major, I think 8.0 plus earthquakes on the New Madrid Fault, which runs basically along the Mississippi River in the early 19th century, one of which reversed the flow of the Mississippi River, created the Oxbow Lakes, and rang church bells in Boston. That's how big it was. So if an earthquake that big hit a major... I'll use that as my answer. It's not fun. No, I mean, that's a good one, because it's true that, you know, the cities that are prepared, it's sort of like there's always tornadoes in Kansas. Yeah. But there's no reason tornadoes have to be in Kansas. And so then sometimes they happen in New York or yep. sometimes they happen in places where it's not infrastructurally prepared for. And then that's when really chaos breaks out. There's no such thing. This is a totally different podcast, but there's no such thing as a natural disaster. <laughs> All disasters are a force of some kind. And if we're talking about a natural disaster, it would be a natural force hitting a built environment and a man-made system. And I've covered disaster a lot in my life. So, you know, whether you're talking about buildings collapsing in Port-au-Prince in 2010 or the electricity going out for a year in Puerto Rico because of Hurricane Maria in uh, 2017 or anything, like all of that is because a force, an outside force from nature essentially, hits a built environment that can't withstand it. And so like in Puerto Rico, people died, thousands of people died because the power went out for a year because the island's electrical grid was not built to withstand a category five hurricane because of colonialism, because colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining me, John. This was great. All right. So your book is Gangsters of Capitalism and people should buy it today. Right now. And you are also on Substack. Let's give them the URL. Yeah. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's a vanity URL. It's theracket.news.news. You can also go to cats.substack.com if you can't remember that. But theracket.news is the main way. Thank you so much, John. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Tommy Heron. 
If you enjoyed it, go to bendreyfus.substack.com and subscribe to Good Faith for other things. And if you didn't like it, maybe go there anyways. What else do you have to do? Doesn't seem like you're very busy.